0: Hey everybody, welcome to The Exit Podcast, this is Dr. Bennett, I'm joined here by Dr. Patrick Roll with Covenant MD, a direct primary care practice in Pennsylvania. I wanted to get him on the show to talk about their alternative system for delivering healthcare that's of particular interest to entrepreneurs. And those who want to be independent of corporate health insurance. Welcome to the show, Dr. Roll. Thanks for having me. So uh, you you heard me say Dr. Bennett. Uh, I'm like a Dr. Pepper kind of a doctor.
1: Um, Oh, yeah, I was wondering.
0: (laughs) (laughs) So uh, tell us a little bit about what direct primary care is.
1: Well, that name direct care comes from uh, direct primary care doctors making, uh, so to speak, a direct contract with their patients. And uh, what that means is by directing By contracting directly with our patients, we're we're not contracting with third parties like insurance companies. Uh, So uh, practically, that that means that our patients are paying us a uh, low monthly fee. Typically, in DPC practices around the country, it might be anywhere from $20 to $100 to $150 a month. Um, And we don't bill health insurance uh, for any primary care services. So that removes the third party from the primary care equation. Uh, lets us really kind of streamline and innovate the primary care product, make it very patient-centric, give a much, much higher focus on the patient-doctor relationship and uh, makes the patient uh, come out happier and, and, the, and the doctor uh, come out happier as well.
0: Yeah. So with a, a DPC practice, you can have all your checkups, your labs, your prescriptions, and even a lot of things that would normally be an urgent care or even an emergency room visit taken care of. So like setting a bone, stitching things, that mm-hmm. kind of thing?
1: Yeah, so the idea is that about 90% of healthcare needs would be covered uh, under the direct primary care arrangement. So for that that monthly fee, it typically covers all visits to the doctor without any co-pays typically. That's how we do it in our practice. Um, we, we tell our patients really anything that urgent care can do, we can do. So we're, we're on call for our patients 24-7, 365, uh, it, 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 we do go on vacation, we just hand that off to our partners as need be to cover our patient panel. But it means that we know our, our patients really well. Um, we get to know them long-term. Um, so we, we know who it is with, with that's calling. We usually know the, the context with which they're calling. We know uh, their healthcare history and everything. So uh, it, it makes it a lot easier to practice. I, I should add that, that it, it's possible to do that because in direct primary care, because our patients are paying us that monthly fee, we're able to to limit our patient panel. So out out in the uh, insurance taking world, we family doctors might um, cover anywhere from two to 3000 patients on their panel. Whereas in direct primary care, we're able to limit it to probably 800 max. Uh, So what that equates to instead of 20 to 30 visits a day, It takes us down to about a very manageable six to eight visits a day. And even that's a very busy day. So I I would say I see anywhere from maybe two to eight patients a day. Gives us a lot of time with them. Um, Allows us to really focus on their needs. Um, I don't have to dread anymore. uh, My patients coming in with that uh, list of things they want to address in a visit that's maybe only budgeted for 20 minutes, including (laughs) maybe, maybe seven minutes with the nurse in uh, 13 minutes with face-to-face time with, the, with a physician patient. Um, you know, b- back in that environment, I always used to say, I can, I can address maybe your chief complaint. Maybe uh, maybe one other thing, but if, if anything else needs addressing, i will need to make an appointment to come back and see me. And, and because it, it, uh, it, typically uh, space is very limited in busy practices, they'd have to come back in maybe uh, one to two months at best. Right. to address those other things. So in in this environment in drug primary care, we're able to address all of those things in one visit. And because our our schedule is usually open, um, it's usually relatively unbooked, even a couple of days ahead of time. Um, they're able to, we're able to really schedule those visits whenever we need them, whenever our patients need them. So,
0: I mean, it, it. it sounds like it could potentially be a little bit like private school, where it's great if you can get in, but it's tough to get in. Is it is it pretty hard to get on your list?
1: Uh, yeah, good question. My, my, my patient panel is, is closed. You know, Part of the, the caveat of, um, of being a direct primary care doctor is that, that that panel eventually has to close in order to continue to deliver the services uh, that we need. So uh, it's really limited by the providers I can hire uh, to, to fill the demand for direct primary care services.
0: Yeah. So, okay. So fair enough. It is, it is tough to get. (laughs) So uh, do, do people, um, do people wait in line? How does that work?
1: So uh, in my, I have two locations with Coven MD. I have uh, one in Lancaster, Pennsylvania, one in York, Pennsylvania. Um, I have a physician partner whose panel is still open to new patients. I have a a physician's assistant partner here in Lancaster whose panel is open. Then I have a physician assistant partner in York. Her panel is open. So I, I'm the only provider that's closed right now um, in, in the history of my practice. When we've been completely booked up, we just put patients on a waiting list and then as space becomes available. We can take them off that waiting list. Uh, so, you know, ideally we hire uh, ideally we hire providers that uh, we can keep up with the demand so that there's never a waiting list. But uh, that's been hard to navigate sometimes.
0: Got it. So if I'm local, I can, I can go to Covenant. I just can't see Dr. Roll right now.
1: That's correct.
0: Okay. Got it. Okay, cool. So, uh, you've got, you've got your basic, uh, bumps and bruises and colds and, and, and daily primary care stuff taken care of. Plus, you know, if you, if you, uh, you know, put a nail into your hand or something, um, mm-hmm. But uh, you do encourage patients to get insurance for catastrophic coverage, which you know, as as you mentioned, is supposed to be the point of insurance is to cover uh, catastrophic uh, outcomes, right? So, um, what are some elements of things that you don't cover that you would encourage someone to have some coverage for?
1: So, we certainly wouldn't cover uh, specialty visits whenever that's needed. Um, we, we I. We tell them we cover uh, almost all of urgent care. If something uh, requiring emergency care comes up, um, it's something that requires an emergency room. So certainly, if they're they call us complaining of chest pain, we tell them to call nine one one. Any mm-hmm. stroke symptoms certainly, um, complex lacerations, injuries, maybe complex fractures, uh, we would send them on to the emergency room. Um, but there's a lot of even emergent things that we can handle here. So probably my my most common reason to get called in in An evening, weekend, or holiday is to do stitches. So uh, right. that's probably the most common thing that I'll that I'll do after hours. But um, so we do we do tell them that uh, for when it comes to specialty care that that they would have to either continue with specialists that they're currently seeing, um, or or we just refer in, into any of the hospital networks in our local area. So there's really no barrier to doing that. Um, we can easily do that. Um, we, we also emphasize that in, in direct primary care, we're really trying to, to limit the fragmentation in care, uh, that is so rampant in our healthcare system. So, uh, oh, yeah, w- with direct, with, with primary care doctors being so, um, squeezed for time, uh, they can handle, you know, the, the very, the very basic things. Um, but when it comes to more complex care, maybe complex, high blood pressure, um, even some depression, anxiety, it's kind of incentivizing the healthcare system to refer to other providers that, that provide specialty care for those things. So a nephrologist for high blood pressure, for instance, or a kidney doctor for high blood pressure, an endocrinologist or hormone doctor for diabetes, perhaps a psychiatrist for anxiety and depression. But in direct primary care, we, we have the real we really have the key ingredient, I think, and that is time. We have time with our patients. We have time even outside of the clinical visit to research things to a, a, as we need to, to really make sure we're giving optimum care and that we're, we're, we're trying to bring as much as we can under that direct primary care envelope. So perhaps we can decrease a, a bit of that, that fragmentation of care that's yeah. occurring in our healthcare system. And so that we can um, really assist the patient by being a quarterback uh, for their healthcare, uh, being as, as engaged with, we as we can with, a with their specialty providers, if they see them, um, maybe trying to to take as as much of that specialty care under our umbrella as we can in the way of uh, blood work. We we do blood work at discounts in our in our um, in our office. We could disp- we could dispense medications at cost in our office. So there, there's there's a lot that that we can do maybe to to decrease their exposure, so to speak, to specialty care. But you know, certainly certainly keeping it within what is what is prudent for the patient
0: yeah that's been such a frustration of mine is is that uh virtually any time where i'm going to a primary care their job feels like they're they're like a referral service or their job is to say you're being paranoid go home like (laughs)
1: like
0: a lot of actual care happening there it's just like does a specialist need to hear about this yes or no And then I feel frustrated
1: with the money I'm paying for that visit. Yeah. And I I feel like this model really lets me, I I went to medical school with a dream of being a family doctor. I kind of, I wanted to be a generalist. I wanted to to know uh, as much as I could and be all I could for my patients. You know, I kind of really had this Marcus Welby-ish vision for uh, general practice, small town doc, home visits, um, and everything. And, uh, so yeah, that was kind of the vision
0: yeah, that I'm trying to
1: implement in DPC.
0: It's a beautiful idea. And I, I, that's leads to my next question, which, you know, it says here, you offer home visits at no extra charge. And that's mm-hmm. just such a wholesome image. I'm picturing the stethoscope and the black, the, the leather bag and the whole, uh, do, do you yeah. request that? What are those visits like?
1: Uh, the, the most common reason we would do home visits now is, is for uh, when a new baby arrives one of one of our uh, parents uh, has has a baby they want to bring them into the practice too then uh, you know when they're when mom and baby are discharged from the hospital they kind of limit their uh, exposure to uh, <laughs> germs in the office particularly in the era of, era of covid uh, sure. that, that's probably the most common reason to do home visits but um I've just always enjoyed getting to know patients in the context of their home, um, really bringing them the convenience of of, uh, of um, being able to deliver primary care in the home. You know, if mom is uh, at home with the four kids and it's not easy for them to, to pack them in the van to come to our office for the, the one kid that has an ear infection, um, it sometimes is easy for us to just uh, take a drive down the road and see them ourselves. Yeah. So yeah, that's been, and you you asked about the leather bag, you know, that was kind of a, uh, I, I wanted to get that uh, as right as I could when I was building the website and make that part of my brand. <laughs> so I think if anyone goes to my, my website, come nd.net, I think that that picture is going to be front and center of the leather bag. <laughs> <laughs> Excellent. I love toting that thing around.
0: Yeah, I bet. I bet. That's just such a great image. Um, so... Um. That that's something that's 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 no extra charge, subject to availability, obviously. What elements of the practice are uh, included in the the overall fee, and what elements are kind of a la carte?
1: So uh, the a la carte items include after hours visits. So uh, if <laughs> there needs to be a, a, any sort of so our our, our business hours generally eight eight thirty a.m. to five p.m. Monday through Friday. Um, anything after hours, weekends, or holidays, uh, we'll charge fifty dollars. Whether we go to the patient's home or where they come into the office, uh, so that that's an extra fee there. Um, yeah, I, I mentioned the most common reason for me to come into the office uh, after hours would be for stitches. So they're they're paying the monthly fee, even though they may come in uh, and pay that fifty dollar fee for stitches. Um, they're meet, they're meeting the doctor they know uh in the office without a weight in the office that they know. Um the doctor does the stitches. Uh, I often know the kiddos pretty well. Uh if it's a kiddo that I'm stitching up. Yeah. Um, and fifty dollars out the door, of course, in addition to their monthly payment. But if you take that fifty dollars plus the monthly fee, um, compared to what they would have paid at urgent care or even the ER, depending on what what part of the body the the, the cut is on. And usually oh, yes. just want one, one um one visit for stitches like that play, pays for the, the, a year's membership in our practice. So that, that's one, one, a la carte, one a la carte charge is that that after hours fee. Our patients also uh, will pay for any lab test that they need. And because we don't carry insurance contracts, we are able to negotiate uh, the, the, the best cash pay price that uh, both local labs and um, the big national labs can offer us. So what that means is you know, for a, a battery of annual fasting blood work, if you will. So we'll, we'll say that's standard kidney and liver function, that that might be a cholesterol panel. It might be a screening test for blood sugar. It might be thyroid function. Uh, if they pay insurance negotiated prices uh, in, in the, the normal market, and if those labs aren't covered uh, before the deductible, they might expect to pay anywhere from 300 to $400 for those tests. In our office, it's, it comes to $17. Yeah. So while they do pay for labs, um, we're able to tell them exactly what the cost of each test is. And they can make the decision based on our advice to go forward with that. Um, so labs is a second thing. Um, Another thing is medications. So we do keep a pharmacy in our office and we carry all the common antibiotics, all the common primary care meds. Uh, Again, it's pennies on the dollar and we're able to quote them prices for that. We don't, we don't upcharge for uh, any of our uh, meds. Uh, We just charge them costs. So there's really no incentive to us if they can find a better deal at the pharmacy down the street. So, we make a lot of use in our um, exam rooms of GoodRx. GoodRx.com is a website that compares cash pay prices at most local pharmacies. So, it, it's easy for us to pull that up and just uh, compare that to our costs. Usually, we're beating GoodRx, but um, if they can get it better at Wegmans, for instance, then we'll let them know that. We can just easily send the prescription to Wegmans. It's up to them. Um, we're also contracted with a mail order pharmacy. And that pharmacy uh, can mail their, their medication, particularly chronic medications to them, directly to their home at, at very similar prices that they could get through our pharmacy in the office. So just an added convenience there. So the a la carte charges, um, after hours, fees, medications, labs. Um, and then sometimes uh, there, there might be uh, there might be procedure fees um, Usually those come in, and so for instance, our local pathologist here. If we do skin biopsies, they'll just client bill us for the pathology fee. So we just oh. tell a patient, while well, there's no charge for any primary care procedures we do, um, there, there may be an additional charge that will be um, charged by our pathologist partner. Uh, usually seven dollars to look at the pathology specimen from a skin biopsy, but otherwise all primary all primary care. Pro- procedures are covered. That would include EKGs, uh, stitches, skin biopsies, pap smears, and things like that.
0: Uh, What about like maybe slightly bigger things like an endoscopy or colonoscopy?
1: So that's something we wouldn't do in our office. Uh, We're not uh, credentialed to do those tests. So we we would send them for uh, endoscopies and colonoscopies to our, our local gastroenterology or general surgery practices.
0: Got it. So uh, if I'm if I'm trying to sign up for this, I need to expect to pay the fee. I need to expect to pay for after hours labs, medicines, things like that. And then I probably need to have some kind of high deductible plan that covers me in the event of. And so, like like the 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 um, the worst case. If I, I'm trying to, I'm trying to like define the boundaries of like, what's, mm-hmm. what's what are you going to run into if you do this? So the worst case is probably like, I need a lot of expensive specialists, but it's not enough to hit my deductible. Like that's going to be a really expensive year if I'm on this, uh, sure.
1: mm-hmm. okay.
0: So, um, I, I wanted to ask you also, um, if if, uh, if I'm at the uh, if I'm at the all-you can-eat buffet um, I'm maybe getting people who are trying to get their money's worth out of the all-you can-eat buffet and so uh, if you are offering sort of this unbounded <laughs> uh, right. access to you for the for a monthly fee do you get a lot of kind of hypochondria and and uh, people who want to be seen a lot
1: yeah, great question. Uh, in, in trying to sell this business model to my wife, because she was the first one I really had to sell it to in order to open my own business and uh, <laughs> go into debt to do this and everything, she she had a very similar question. Won't you attract all the hypochondriacs? And um, I, I think uh, the, the answer is, is no. I, I think every doctor's patient panel is is going to be be balanced by those that are, I would call them higher utilizers of primary care services and those that just, uh, it's even hard to get them to come in for their annual physical. And I I would say uh, our our breakdown of those patients aren't really any different from the years when I did work in, uh, in an insurance taking practice. So... Um, for our higher utilizers, I, again, we have, I think we have the privilege of time with them. We get, we get to know them really well. Uh, we, we make maximum use of telemedicine. Um, certainly, if the patient prefers to have a face-to-face visit in the office, uh, that we can do that. Otherwise, we can use secure email, secure text messaging. We can use uh, um, video visits as well uh, to, to sort of streamline our time and, and the patient's time. Um, and even even make our communication asynchronous asynchronous if you will in the form of email if that's appropriate and if that's fine with the patient
0: yeah I wonder if getting away from the scarcity mindset almost helps to put that anxiety to bed a little bit
1: like- yeah I, I, I think that's exactly right so i I, I think and in, in my 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 wife's big reservation was um, yeah I, I, when I was working in the insurance-based practice, she saw how stressed out I was, the the hours that I put in, and just kind of keeping up with my notes and everything. And she was just worried that uh, with being taking 365, 24 twenty four seven call, what kind of quality of life will that be? Will that be even worse? And you know, I'm six years into it now, and I and I, I think, uh, yeah. And she, my wife, is actually the administrator for our practice, and and talks to a lot of prospective patients and everything. So so it's really able to offer them. Um, or, or even you know, potential uh, provider, physician, em- employees, what, what exactly life in our, in our practice is like. So I, I, I would say uh, I can count on probably both my hands how many times I need to come into the office in the calendar year. So um, wow. it, it, it's not too burdensome. Um, I, I might handle one or two text messages an evening, uh, maybe a few over a weekend. Um, usually it, it's very brief exchanges, uh, uh pretty simple. So, uh, the, the, quality of life is, is certainly much better than, than what I had in, the, in the situations I was in previously.
0: Cool. Yeah. And I wouldn't make fun of those people because, uh, there's, there's a, there's a lower functioning version of me. Who's very much, uh, a high utilizer. I'm, I <laughs> tend to freak out, uh, all the time. And, um, and, uh, my dad, my dad used to, he, he would calm me down by being like, let me tell you about the time I beat prostate cancer and pancreatic cancer and testicular cancer. He just tells me about all the times right, he thought yeah. he
1: had- <laughs> Right.
0: <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, so you're, you're really selling me. Cause I, I really feel like if I, if I had a doc that I, that I knew I could get, you know, on a moment's notice to just have the conversation, it would be, uh, it would be really reassuring. So that's, that's, that's awesome. That's really, really cool. Um, Okay. So, uh, you wrote this fantastic blog post titled how the Amish made me a better doctor. Right. Uh, so, right. So, did you actually, it sounds like you spent some time in, in a conventional like corporate healthcare environment, but then you spent some time at this Amish Mennonite clinic. Can you, can you tell us a bit about your experience at that clinic and how it led you down this
1: road? Yeah. So, uh, not from Lancaster County, PA. My wife is, so uh, we we moved here uh, several years ago, and uh, was working in a big sort of standard healthcare system here in, in the Lancaster area, and this opportunity came up uh, to uh, to work for this independent uh, clinic in a small town here in Lancaster County that that catered uh, specifically to the to the Amish and Mennonite. And I, it seemed like frontier medicine to me. It, it seemed like uh, that was the very dream uh, that Marcus Welby-ish dream that I had when I when I uh, started medical school. So I couldn't resist um, was was a bit tough at first on a couple of fronts. One, there was just a lot of OJT on the job training, refreshing and uh, getting used to casting and splinting. We had our own X-ray machine. And. Um, the, the Amish really expected the, the primary care doctor to do as much as he or she could and avoid the emergency room. So saw, saw a lot of, uh, incredible soft tissue trauma, uh, lot of bone <laughs> trauma, uh, just did, did, did a lot of things that I just never envisioned myself doing as a primary care doctor. It was a, it was a, it was a real adventure. Um, but, uh, how do, so I, I think it made me a better doctor in, in a sense that it, it gave me much more uh, a taste of the breadth of, of uh, general primary medical care and family medicine uh, from babies all the way up to the elderly. Wow. Um, the other way it made me a better doctor is it is it um, brought home the true cost of care. So I'll never forget my first couple of weeks there. I had an Amish gentleman come in suffering from migraine headaches and I uh, prescribed for him, you know, what I was used to prescribing a medicine called Imatrex, generic name is sumatriptan, medicine that uh, a migraine sufferer can take uh, that would, that would help to to abort the headache or, or, or help it to go away. And so I thought that uh, I would try this medicine for this, for this gentleman. And, um, when insurance is the third party payer. Uh, we're often uh, insulated from that cost of care. Uh, you know, that, that's putting it mildly. We really have no idea um, what uh, our, the, the cost of what we're prescribing is to either the third-party insurer or to the patient. Right. Um, and that that fact is a lot more dire in in this in this day and age when deductibles are so high. Um, but in any case, I, I prescribed Imetrex for my Amish patient, They he went to the pharmacy down the road, and lo and behold, it was. 250, about $250 for nine tablets. Can, typically comes in nine tablet packets and um, quickly called me back that, that day and said he, he just couldn't do that. So that um, just an example of, you know, how my eyes were opened to the cost of care. Um, that clinic was already pretty well adept at uh, connecting their providers with, uh, with self-pay resources in the community. Of course the Amish don't carry uh typical, health insurance. For for many, many years, they've they've been doing um, what sharing plans, modern sharing plans are doing now. So um, church members pay into one pot, so to speak, and and that money is used to fund um, members' health insurance costs. So that's how how the Amish have been doing it uh, for many years. So they're looking for um, the best care at the best prices. So uh, we we knew where to go to get an MRI for $450, for instance, uh, to get a CAT scan for $250. Uh, We had cash pay prices for labs and things like that. Uh, We knew what the specialists were in our community that would deliver uh, good cash pay prices for our, our, our Amish clients. So yeah, those, those are a few ways where I, I, I think uh, working in that practice really, really made me a better doctor, it gave me more breadth of, of care and more experience with a, with a broader uh, breadth of care and uh, really helped me zero in on that, that uh, true cost of medical care that needs to be part of, and it, it continues to be part of uh, our conversation in the exam room. You know, what is the cost of care? Um, instead of that just being handled outside uh, by a third-party payer.
0: Yeah, and did you – so with in the case of the uh, the patient that needed Imitrex, um how does seeing the sticker price for the procedures affect the way people get care or the way that you offer care? Like, are you more likely to offer holistic interventions like diet and exercise? Like, do you have more of those conversations because – of the sticker price?
1: Yeah, I, I absolutely do. And it's not because of the sticker price. You know, I, I have no, you know, I'll, I'll use diabetes as an example, type two diabetes. Um, that That's it, it, It's interesting times uh, it, with, with type two is I, I really think that the, the, the best medications for the treatment of type two diabetes are actually the newer medications that are very expensive and may really need uh, the assistance of a, of a, health, a health insurance product uh, to assist our patients to afford them. And I would have no hesitation in prescribing them. They're great medications. They really help to address uh, what is the problem in, in type 2 diabetes, um, which is insulin resistance. Mm-hmm. Um, but yes, I, I, re, re, I do. Because I have time to spend with my patients, I, I'm really trying to, to harp on lifestyle. Um, So I I would talk to my diabetics uh, about uh, low carb or the ketogenic diet, uh, something that might help to control their blood sugar far better than any medication that I can prescribe in many cases. Uh, So if you take time to coach them through a low carb diet, Um, They may even be able to greatly decrease their insulin dose or even come off of their insulin altogether. And they they may not require as many medications as they've been on. If that leads to some weight loss, it may improve their blood pressure. They may be able to come off of their blood pressure medicines. So, uh, yeah, we talk to them, uh, talk to our patients a lot about lifestyle, diet, exercise. Uh, I talk to my patients a lot about sleep. Uh, so if you can zero on in on some of those uh, lifestyle things, then uh, some of these chronic diseases do very much improve uh, diabetes with diet, um, anxiety, depression with better sleep and exercise. Mm. Um, so, yes, those are those are low cost uh, interventions, saving our patients a lot of money. But in, in in the case of diabetes, if it comes, if it requires the assistance of some of these other medications to help control blood, blood pressure and, and even assist them in losing weight, then. We do everything we can to, to get them on those medications.
0: Yeah. In, in, in the case of the Amish, you know, if, if they are, they're not taking your advice to get catastrophic coverage on top of their direct primary care. I know you mentioned that they have essentially a health sharing arrangement.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah.
0: Um, do they have a different approach to things like cancer, things like car accidents, or is it just that they handle it with this, uh, this health sharing thing instead of conventional insurance.
1: Yeah, they, they would still handle it within that that health sharing um, environment and, and not use traditional insurance even to pay for the very expensive things. Uh, so e- even those uh, really higher cost things like cancer surgeries are handled within the sharing plan.
0: Okay, but they still do get that type of care. They just, uh,
1: they, they still care. absolutely get that type of care, yes. So, okay. yeah, they, they, they don't, they typically don't avoid even the higher cost care when it's medically indicated. Um, it, it isn't always the case. Uh, sometimes uh, cost can be quite a barrier with them, um, and they might be more prone to uh, do other alternative things um, by other alternative providers in the community. Um, so we, we, we do our best to try to try to navigate that system too.
0: Yeah, that, that was going to be another question is, is I'm sure that in that environment, you, you surely dealt with cultural uh, differences, especially as regards uh, technology and Western medicine. And how did, how did you navigate that?
1: Yeah, that was that that was a challenge. Um, You know, uh, one big change in coming into uh, being a doctor for the Amish and Mennonite is, whereas uh, in the typical practice, doctors still enjoy or providers still enjoy some prestige. Uh, In in the practice with the Mennonite, I I think and the Amish, I think uh, medical doctors were were uh, on par with. uh, sometimes the uncle down the road that uh, um, d- doled out medical advice and had some herbs to offer. Um,
0: You're just one other guy they can talk it's to. Just
1: one other guy they can talk to. Exactly. <laughs> uh, so there a whole stream of other um, holistic providers, some of them very good chiropractors, some of them very good. Um, but uh, sometimes we we really had to battle against uh, advice that was we we felt was just very dentri- detrimental to their health.
0: Can you can you give me an example of like things that you had to fight them with?
1: Um, wh- one big example that I recall was Lyme disease. So uh, yeah, that's that's been a controversy for some time. Um, But in different tests for Lyme, um, you know, there were there are providers in the area that would uh, put electrodes on their fingers and would use uh, electrical current to diagnose uh, the chronic and acute Lyme. And uh, we would use that information to then treat Lyme with uh, with a pretty complex uh, and usually pretty expensive uh, cocktail of herbal remedies um, for what may or may not have been Lyme. So, uh, in you know, just talking about uh, with our, with my patients about su- how we would test Lyme, what some of the limitations of our testing would be, um, what tests are validated for uh, diagnosing Lyme, what tests are not validated for diagnosing Lyme, what is validated as a as a treatment for Lyme, and what are not. Um, th- those were so the, I think that was a, one big challenge that that comes to mind.
0: But you're not just having a single uh, not particularly patient 12 minute conversation, uh, you know, once a year with like, you've got time to kind of massage and and, and acquire some personal uh, credentials, even if they don't care about your degree.
1: Correct. So yeah, we, we do, <laughs> we, we do want to uh, treat the, patients certainly in with respect to their values and what they, what they think, uh, and, and in terms of their finances, what they feel that they could do. Yeah. Um, another, yeah, another but, comment. Go ahead.
0: Uh, well, I was just going to say, so I have a, I have a doctor buddy who, um, basically, so my, my, uh, I, I don't know what your take is on the whole COVID situation. I, I have definitely, um, heard every voice I think on, on that (laughs) that situation. And I'm not, uh, I, I, I don't, I wouldn't pretend to be an expert on anything. Um, but I am, I am skeptical enough that I, 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 don't just sort of buy, you know, what, what is being popularly, uh, propagated about it. But I did have a doctor friend who was like, Hey man, I'm in the hospital every day. I'm seeing this happen. It's really serious. You should take it seriously. It's a problem. And, and just, and it wasn't because like, Oh, he's a doctor. It's because he was my friend and I knew he was smart. I knew he wasn't full of crap. And so, uh, I, I think having the, uh, having the personal proximity to your patients and, and being able to develop that relationship is huge.
1: Yeah, exactly. Especially when it comes to conversations about COVID. And, uh, you know, like you, my patients are just all over the map about um, what they believe about COVID, what they want to do, vaccines, treatment, the whole nine yards. So, yeah, it just requires, um, yeah, that's where I I really enjoy knowing my patients well, Um, though uh, my views may differ from my patients' views sometimes. In the context of that that um, relationship I've established with them now over many years, um, it, it's it's really helped streamline the the pandemic for us.
0: Yeah, I, I wanted to ask you about have you have you had to deal with more distrust or pushback from patients in the last few years, or does you, the nature of your practice kind of insulate you from that?
1: But yeah I, I think it did insulate insulate us somewhat um, when, when the pandemic occurred and the and or began and the and the lockdowns occurred um, we, we sort of hit the ground running we were already utilizing telemedicine uh, so we we just pivoted into a, a, a much higher emphasis on telemedicine at, at that time. So our patients were used to interacting with us in that way. so uh, yeah that, that would that was pretty streamlined when we when we made that transition. and then, uh yeah as i said as things developed and you know people got settled into their respective camps if you will <laughs> um regarding all the all the facets of covid yeah because because we knew them and we had that that uh, relationship established with them i i think still those those conversations went pretty well for the most part
0: awesome so you are a provider in the direct primary care space but you're also a patient yourself in a health-sharing ministry can you tell us yes. how that's been for you
1: well unfortunately I can't tell you too much because uh, either I'm very healthy or I'm just really stubborn like uh, most uh, <laughs> middle-aged male guys and just never go to the doctor um, and I think being a male physician, it, it ratchets that up even even higher. Uh, but you know, my my family are are higher utilizers of of a, of a sharing plan. So um, I, I think it's been a great experience, uh, really, since I opened my practice. It, really, the the attraction of health sharing plans is that it is good comprehensive care uh, for a, a much lower price uh, than what we would pay for for premiums to a standard insurance product. So we were members of Samaritan Ministries for a few years. Um, we uh, used Sedera for a couple of years, and and now we've transitioned to Zion Health. And uh, we, we've made those transitions just, just generally based on um, the sharing plans that uh, we could utilize as a small employer here in Lancaster. Um, I think we, we were really happy with all three of those products. Um, in our in our market, they're they're really quite common uh, these sharing plans. but I, I think it's it's been great for my family the, the reimbursement has gone very well, we, we certainly enjoy enjoy uh, the lower uh, premium prices, if you will.
0: Yeah, so I, I did a little bit of reading uh, between our last conversation and it looks like the biggest difference between insurance and a health share is that a health share, is not technically legally obligated to cover your costs in the same way that an insurance company is?
1: That's correct.
0: Now, everybody that I know who participates in one of these sharing organizations is has been pretty happy with the help that they've gotten. Mm-hmm. But have you ever seen that difference cause a problem for someone?
1: No, I, I've never seen it. Um the, the the big the ones that have the biggest market share probably in our area Samaritan Ministries Christian Healthcare Ministries um, and then Zion Health is starting to come around too um, they, they've all they've all been very happy with them in the six years that I've been been treating patients with them so that while they're not legally obligated to cover costs they're not going to be uh, subject to uh, rules and regulations this differs per state. Uh, That would usually govern uh, health insurance companies. Um, They usually deliver very well um, on their intent uh, to cover what they purport to cover.
0: Yeah, I mean, I I imagine as a uh, as a sort of uh, upstart product, um, the need to be uh, reputable (laughs) for for covering things has got to be really high for them. So they, they, they probably would need to err on the side of of saying yes, especially if it's like, you know, somebody has cancer. So, so it's really tragic, the kind of thing that you buy insurance for.
1: Yeah. Know,
0: just one or two of those stories could be uh, an enormous problem for them.
1: Right, right. So, yeah, how, how do they make that viable? Um, I think one reason – I'll take Zion Health for instance if you're if you're a smoker then they would charge your family an extra $50 a month to be a member of the of the plan. Mm. Um, if you have a pre-existing condition and, and all the sharing plans do pre-existing conditions differently. Some will not cover for the first year and then they kind of over the course of maybe 3 to 5 years will sort of ramp up coverage until it's considered a pre-existing condition. So that that's how I think that's how they um, guard, they guard they guard their costs a little bit and are able to offer um, such good prices for premiums.
0: So if you are in an uninterrupted coverage situation, like I have I have corporate insurance right now, and I switch to a health share plan, does that I, this may be deeper than you want to go, but but do, do the pre existing conditions still count as pre existing conditions, or is it like a, the continuum kind of
1: they they all have their definitions as to what uh, constitutes a pre-existing condition so uh you know when it was diagnosed are you stable on medications has there been any need for you to adjust your medications in the in the last several months or so um but generally if you make the change over from a standard insurance product to a, a sharing plan um then there there may be just limited coverage for a pre-existing condition now for Sidera not Sedara, but for Zion Health, that that limitation in coverage might constitute and I can't quote exact numbers, but maybe fifty thousand dollars for the first year, uh, maybe seventy five for the second year, maybe one hundred twenty five thousand for the third year. So while there's a limitation in coverage uh, when it comes to uh, a pre-existing condition that may be chronic, perhaps well controlled, it's still probably what they will cover is usually well within the bounds. Um, of, of what they will typically cost someone in a year, um, if it's uncontrolled diabetes and they may need to be admitted to a hospital because of complications of diabetes, that that's where you know it potentially can get just a little bit dicey in terms of cost if, if that condition was pre-existing.
0: Right, and you're you're so Covenant MD. How roughly how big is your team right now?
1: Uh, we, there's uh, let me see. There's eight of us.
0: Okay. Between two
1: locations. Uh, no, there's four providers and each of us has one nurse.
0: Roger. And then office staff, that kind of thing. Uh,
1: we don't have office staff. So, uh, my wife works part-time, uh, on administration. Um, but, but usually the direct primary care model will work, uh, with one provider working with, uh, one nurse. So I I've seen graphics that the typical FTEs or full-time equivalent employees that a provider needs is about 4.5, I believe. Uh, so when they're, you know, we don't need to hire a coder. We don't need to hire a biller. Um, we right. keep our patient panels at much lower numbers. So, uh, my, my each patient panel is, is like a solo practice within uh, a larger practice. Uh, so my patients get to know my nurse really well. They get to know me really well. Um, our, our billing system is very streamlined and automatic. Um, so there's a a lot less of the attention we need to give to the administrative stuff. And we're able to, to give a lot more attention to the clinical stuff as we ideally should be.
0: Okay. So, so in terms of how you, uh, provide benefits as an employer, do you do? this model for your for your employees how does that work
1: so yeah we would offer them uh, free membership and covenant md for their for their um for their family member for themselves and their immediate family members mm. um we we do offer uh a sharing plan is it's just easy for us to cover that as a smaller employer so we we offer our our patients zion health um, and so they make use of that um And then other standard insurance or standard benefit things like a 401k and things.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, I just got to think that's, that's okay. So, so you have, we we have a few um, doctors and medical students in the group. And from what I can tell, you've got more time with your patients, less brawling with insurance companies, lower overheads, more free time. Why didn't everybody do it this way? What, what are the trade-offs? What, what did you have to pay to get this gig?
1: Yeah, so uh, I, it was, I think, easier for me in a way to do it uh, relatively early on in my career as I didn't come out with any debt. So um, I, I worked for four years between undergrad and medical school, uh, paying down my undergraduate debt. And medical school was free for me because I did a, a scholarship through the U.S. Air Force, the Health Profession Scholarship Program. So uh, medical school is paid for, uh, did seven years active duty um, for anyone considering a career in medicine or a law, I would just uh, highly recommend looking into the armed forces. It's a great way to go. So, uh, so one, one big barrier uh, to someone maybe coming into direct primary care or even starting a direct primary care practice is being sidled with uh, all that debt that doctors typically come out of medical school with and having to be under the thumb of that for, for many, many years. That's a big barrier. Um, another one may be a, a perceived uh, lower security and not being uh, under the um, under the auspices of a of a, of a bigger uh, healthcare system. Um, right. The independent primary care practice is becoming a dinosaur in this day and age. They're they're usually now being bought up by bigger medical systems, and they're usually a part of a bigger medical system that can offer things like loan forgiveness that can offer uh, pretty flashy um, benefits packages that a smaller practice just wouldn't be able to, to, uh, to afford, um, that, that's a barrier. Um, and to think of, 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 so I think those are the bigger ones.
0: The reason that, that being kind of a, involved in a corporate health system would be a benefit to someone who has a lot of debt is just cause they pay more. Is that?
1: Yeah. So it, yeah. Where that would be a barrier is, uh, if, if they, what's really attractive in a, in a more co- corporate environment, if they offer to pay down that debt, um, and if they, um, if they spend, if they sp- have maybe have an, an agreement where they spend uh, such and such time within that system, um, and that would, that would be a barrier. Got it. Uh, to not have a program by which we pay off that debt. Another another big barrier uh, I would mention. You know, any any local doctors that worked work for a local health system that might be interested in joining a smaller independent practice. Um, usually, there will be non compete clauses in a in a physician or provider contract that would say that uh, after leaving our organization, you cannot work within let's say twenty miles of where you were. Uh, working before for a period of two years. So where we would be making a reputation in a local area and where we might be attractive to uh, other providers, maybe coming over for any number of reasons from a a big corporate environment. um, It it might be hard to lure them um, because they're sidled with that. There's those non-compete clauses that will interfere with them working at any other um, office in the local area.
0: Yeah. So you've got, you've got eight people on the rolls right now, and what's the uh, – d- does this – do you want this to scale beyond what it is? What's the, what's the dream, the vision for the big picture?
1: Yes, I, I, so it, it certainly is scalable. I, I, I think um, what, what's really on the rise is uh, the use of direct primary care services by employers. So that that's something that I uh, really benefited benefited from um, having partnerships with local employers from very early on in the life of my practice. So we we currently contract with about fifteen uh, employers in our area, and they vary in, in size from uh, employees of five all the way up to about five hundred. Um, so for some of our employers, we're the only healthcare offering that we that we we offer uh, their employees. So, uh, usually the business would, will pay our monthly fee on behalf of the employee. They may also pay our monthly half a monthly fee on behalf of any family members that choose to, to sign up with us. Um, some employers, if they, if employees incur any costs in the way of medications or procedure costs or, um, I mean, I would need pathology costs or, or lab costs. And sometimes the employers will even pay for those. So they get an entirely free primary care package. So I, I think um, we don't do a lot of advertising in our local area. So we always get uh, a, a sort of a steady influx of people just looking for an out-of-the-box solution for uh, uh, low-cost, high-quality primary care. Um, but, but also... what what also makes this scalable is uh, is what's catching on with uh, with employers as this being an, an option to uh, control costs for 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 primary care services.
0: So currently, you're getting onesies, twosies, but you might at some point start getting kind of whales, where it's all yeah,
1: yeah, right. And, and sometimes we do. So our our um, our York clinic, yeah, I opened that after uh, probably you know, just past our third year so um hard to to open a, a separate clinic in a in a town that's about a half an hour for me but what what really made that work was a larger employer approaching us and saying hey would would you consider um, advising us on building an, an onsite or near site clinic direct primary care clinic and that's how that's how our york clinic started so we are uh, sort of a near site provider for a large employer there and in addition to uh, employees and family members from that large employer, we also uh, serve the general population of New York area as well. Wow. So you know, what's the vision for the future? You know, you know, just uh, just this week, we're beginning talks with a, with a large em, uh, well-known employer in a local area uh, that is considering uh, using us to deliver primary care to their employees. So we're kind of working out whether that's going to be, will employees come to our uh, one of our locations in New York or Lancaster, or would it be more attractive to them for, for, for them to have maybe a smaller clinic that's on-site or near-site? And what would it look like for us to build that out and uh, hire a provider to staff it, uh, a nurse to staff it? So there's a sort of conversations I think we'll, we'll begin to have a lot more of in the coming years, hopefully.
0: Yeah. Me and, the, me and the guys uh, occasionally will talk about the pirate ship. And uh, uh, you, uh, it, it feels really good to be the captain of a pirate ship.
1: Right.
0: a certain number of, uh, of people that that makes sense for. And then eventually you kind of have to be the pirate admiral, and there's a couple pirate ships. Right. And I, I, the, the interesting question to me about people who are in your position where they're, they're, uh, they, they've got their ship, Is like, do do you, do you foresee a time where this becomes a business that you are involved in administrating or, or do you really want to stay the guy with the stethoscope and the the leather bag? Like, how does that feel to you?
1: Yeah. And maybe that's, that's a, that's a key question for entrepreneurs, right? Um, Yeah. How long are they going to remain the the technician, so to speak? And uh, so for me personally, there, there's always that, uh, there's always that pull. So I, I think we'll always be a doctor. Uh, I, I, love, I love being a primary care doctor. Um, I certainly put a lot of blood, sweat, and tears into the training. Um, yeah. And, and it, right now, I'm trying to find a balance. Um, you know, how, how can the business uh, pay me to do more of the administrative business owner stuff and less of the technician stuff? Um, because I think as things scale and, and get a little bigger, and we get more employees, that uh, there's the demands uh, on the business side are are, are harder. They t- they t- they take more time, and so there's there's just going to be this uh, this um, this pull both ways. But I, I think, uh, yeah, I, I, I don't want to be, I don't ever not want to be be a physician in some respect.
0: Yeah, I mean, you mentioned the pain that you went through to get this credential. That's a lot more pain than getting an MBA. So it might, might make sense to have an MBA do the MBA stuff and have sure. you stick to doctoring. Yeah. Uh, that's, uh, but you know, good, good problems to have. So that's, that's exciting. Um, well, uh, this has been just an awesome conversation. I, I feel like the guys are, are really going to enjoy, um, this discussion, particularly from the perspective of, you know, both, both from the side of, you know, I'm a patient, and I want to get away from the corporate health system. Like, there, there's that appeal to it. But also, I love stories of people who, um, say. So we we have so many guys who are like, I feel trapped. I feel like I have to do this one thing. I the, I have definitely talked to doctors for whom medicine is really dehumanizing. And, uh, and like, there's lots of depression, there's lots of like psychological problems in the field. And I think a lot of it is because of this lack of human scale and this, this, uh, you know, they're, they're sort of, um, d- driven by debt and by, you know, they're sort of running around like a, like a chicken with their head cut off. And you have found this niche and, you know, admittedly you know, there were, there were circumstances that made that easier for you to do, but you found a human way to do this. And so that is so cool to me. And I'm, I'm really excited to, to, to show the guys. Thank you so much for uh, taking the time. And for those of you that want to check out, if you're in the Pennsylvania area, we have a couple Pennsylvania guys, you want to check out uh, his practice. It's covenantmd.net. Uh, Otherwise, if you're interested to learn more about Exit Group, you can check us out at exitgroup.us or follow us on Twitter at exit underscore org.
1: Thanks a lot, Dr. Roll. Great. Thanks for having me.